0: Hello and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. In today's episode, in homage to the great Australian obsession with sport, we bring you the second in our series of sport-themed stories, with tales of competition in the great outdoors. And just a warning before we begin that some of today's episode does contain strong language. Our first story comes from Duncan Reed, an Anglican priest at St. George's Church in Flemington, Victoria. Duncan also teaches at Camberwell Girls Grammar School, where he sometimes coaches, and has occasionally been known to play hockey. Duncan's story, Artemis, is published in the Spineless Wonders anthology, Escape, and is read by actor Mark Desay. A Little Fictions regular throughout 2017, Mark is the recipient of an ongoing scholarship to the Stella Adler Academy of Acting in Los Angeles, He is currently living in New York, where he continues to study acting for stage and film.
1: Catherine's team has lost every match for the season, or drawn. They're way out of contention for the finals, so this is their last game. She wants it to be different, and she knows she's the one who'll have to make it different. She half listens as the red-faced coach, who doesn't actually know much about the game, harangues her teammates... So, it's all about defensive play today, all of yous. I want you winners to pull back and support the halves and you halves to pull back and support the backs. The aim is to stop them getting goals. Anything we score will be a bonus. A smart retort about negative thinking occurs to Catherine, but she says nothing. She's not given to expressing her opinion, but that doesn't mean she hasn't got an opinion. The coach is a bore. He drones on and on about defending, naming her teammates one by one and advising them on where they should be and what they should be doing. Catherine is a forward. None of this applies to her. Forwards, keep back and sport the halves, he rambles on. Then he comes to her. Now, listen, Cathy, you're our striker. You stay forward. So what good's that going to do, thinks Catherine to herself, without a concerted attack on goal? without teamwork. The rest of you pass to Kathy if you get the chance, otherwise defend. And Kathy, if you get hold of the ball, strike like a tiger snake. <laughs> Catherine feels herself rolling her eyes and can't help grimacing with embarrassment. She hadn't meant to show it, but just can't help herself. Remember, there's no offside rule in this game, as if she needed to be told. So get in there behind their backs. If I get the ball, thinks Catherine. And don't call me Kathy. The other team arrives. They're all about 10 centimetres taller than Catherine's friends and they look like a team. No quirky or sloppy individualism in uniform over there. They all look super fit, super confident and Nordic blonde. Their coach looks cool in not an uncute sort of way. About a hundred years younger than ours, she thinks, and I'm not a tiger snake. I'm something more dangerous, much more dangerous. Catherine bends down to retie her nikes. Today, I am Artemis, the strong-limbed goddess, the archer, the huntress, the striker. An archer doesn't dirty her hands. She rides above the pack. She tracks her prey and waits patiently for the moment. And when the moment comes, she shoots. That's all. The rest will take care of itself. Catherine joins in the team cheer, but her mind is elsewhere. Artemis, the huntress who stalks and awaits the moment to shoot, contemplates the bow, the arrow, the waiting and the stalking, and the goal shot that will decide everything. They jog into the pitch and clap the other team on. They shake hands. Giants. One of them is supposed to be a state player, but she doesn't know who. We'll all know soon enough, she thinks. Toss up and hit off. They all know soon enough. The one who takes off like lightning, catching the ball and threading it effortlessly, past three of Catherine's teammates, one after the other, passing it on to one of their forwards. Their forwards? Shot on goal already? It's barely 30 seconds into the game. Catherine's backs are there, deflecting it over the back line. Penalty corner. Coach's defensive tactics are actually working, she grumblingly admits to herself. Penalty corner again and again, but the play is at all our end and we're defending. Nothing much for a striker to do. Catherine is out on her own. Their goalie, their goalie, is looking bored. Underemployed, thinks Catherine. She can afford to be. No chance of her getting her stick on the ball. Penalty corners again... Penalty corners against Catherine's team are won again But, thank goodness, not converted Not long before the half-time whistle Catherine has glanced at the clock The ball comes to her Their team is so focused on their attack They miss it And suddenly, Catherine has the ball on her stick She's there, inside the D Their one fullback and their goalie Suddenly looking alarmed Catherine strikes Artemis, the archer, the goddess of the hunt Going down on one knee and arching out for the strike The ball lifting to eye level The defender, no more than three metres away Reeling to avoid being hit The goalie reaching ineffectually And far too late to stop the goal shot Going right to the top corner of the goal Whistle, slaps on the back High fives and cheers from her teammates Artemis has struck And scored Euphoria This is euphoria As she turns and jogs But wait The umpires are conferring Silence, jogging to a halt. What's happening? Dangerous play, the umpire signals. Goal disallowed. Well, what were you expecting, Artemis the Huntress, to play safe? Catherine is in a daze, in angry disbelief. When the halftime whistle blows, she jogs back to base, her teammates coming in more slowly, red-faced and puffing. Nice try, Cathy, says coach, but just make it legal next time and it turns to the panting defenders. Catherine's involuntary frown passes unnoticed. Whistle blow, second half and no score so far. Penalty corners and free hits are taken and opportunities lost on both sides. The play has settled down to a slogging match, backward and forward. So, thinks Catherine, where's their state player now? She's off, but now she's on again. The scores nil all, and with maybe seven minutes to go, Catherine suddenly remembers their coach, their quite cool-looking coach, and glances over. Has he noticed her, his opposition striker? He's noticed her all right. And he's looking her up and down, checking her out, Actaeon spying on the strong-limbed Artemis. Catherine feels her own transformation into purity itself, into pure, refined fury. Artemis feels the blood rush to her head, bastard, she thinks. Hope they eat you alive, those bitches of yours. Looking back to the game, Catherine sees her chance, the ball homing in on her stick at last, all of its own accord, and her within the D, behind their left back. Her stick becomes her golden bow, the ball, the arrow, it's her ball, and it's all a matter of simple geometry now. The exact angle, the perfect parabola, the precise deflection into goal, the satisfying hollow crack of ball on wood, the perfect shot, the effortless deflection with no hands dirtied the rest takes care of itself the opposition goalie there goalie dreaming comes alive but all too late in reaching for the ball the ball hits the blackboard the whistle her exhausted friends cheering her exhausted self turning slowly back then that slow strange double sound of the umpire's whistle sometimes welcome often not the game is ended the giants overthrown artemis returning from the hunt
0: that was mark desay performing duncan reed's artemis the next story is by brisbane writer trina denner trina holds a master's degree in writing and is currently engaged in a phd project exploring young adult fiction her short story playing outside was published in the Spineless Wonders anthology, Stoned Crows and Other Australian Icons, and it is about the iconic suburban pastime of jogging. Fluorescent shoes sprint past. The soles, chunked with blue and green rubber innovations, wave at us. He must be doing a tempo run, Paul says, our feet hitting the pavement in tandem. Yeah, I watch the guy pass. Orbs of sweat leap off his body in explosive arcs. Without consultation, we speed up. You got netball this morning, I ask. Yep, he draws breath. Simone's team playing the Amazonians. Nice name, he snorts. They might be 12, but I wouldn't back myself in an arm wrestle with a couple of them. I take my eyes off where my feet are landing to look sideways. It's the hormones in chicken, he smiles. You, he questions. No, nah, they've done nothing for me, he laughs. I'm on the soccer run, I say. Gotta have two kids on different fields at the same time. I jump sideways onto the grass to avoid a lady leading a schnauzer. Its tail is erect, the sceptre of the path, monarch. I get a whiff of lavender talc, but it's gone, and the earthiness of the brook is back in my nostrils. A string of bikes approach from the other direction. Paul leaps off to the other side. Shit! His shoe sinks into the mud that skulks beneath the grass. We reunite beyond the interruptions, moving south poled magnets pointed towards a common north. Bloody cyclists, he mutters. Why don't they keep their lycra-clad asses off the bike paths and on the road where they belong? I smile. Last week, they needed to stay off the roads. Grown men do not wear pink, he adds. And the women? He grunts. You're a colour bigot. Boys can wear pink, but they shouldn't. Homophobe. I tease. Girl! He throws back. We run. I feel prickling on my skin where the sweat congregates at the small of my back. I reach behind and unstick the fabric of my shirt. It flops immediately back. I can smell the must of my sports bra. Nineteen ninety-five worth of absorptive memory of sweat and kilometres run in the Queensland sun. Are you coming to club this week? Nah. His head is shaking in my peripheral vision. The wife's taken up yoga. What, on a Tuesday night? He sounds miffed. We're taking turns, week about. Apparently, we live in a democracy. I chuckle, despite my annoyance. Can't she pick another night? I've told her that old birds don't do yoga. They'll break a hip. How'd that go down? What do you reckon? She took me apart. I knew, Pam. I knew that was a lie. She said the class was full of all sorts and I should come along. His words were punctuated with panted hyphens. Might help my running. I smirk. Sounds appealing. I'll tell you next week. You're going? I slow up, letting him move through the footbridge before me. I watch his shoulder blades swing beneath his singlet, his wiry arms relaxed as Sunday brunch. I can't imagine there's much stretch in those spindly legs, Paul. The bloody insolence, he says in mock horror. I know he likes the jibes, gives us something to talk about. But compared to the Gen Ys, I'm incredibly well behaved, I announce. My mind wanders to the grey hairs I've been finding at my temples, plucking them out by the roots. He harumphs. I speed up to get back alongside as we cruise into the street where Paul lives. The last stretch is uphill. We push. I see my car parked away off. I imagine my water bottle warm from sitting in the sun on the passenger seat. I can taste it running down my throat. I jump a broken bottle. Its label holds together some of the glass carnage. I land with a crunch at the edge of the splatter pattern. We stop at the mailbox, number 23, Michael Jordan's number. It's an unspoken finishing marker. To stop before would be certain failure. Once reached, we're free to palaver around the driveway like drunken pigeons, hands, wings on hips. How far'd we go, I question. Paul brings his GPS watch up close to his eyes and fiddles with the buttons. 23.4, uh, he says. Good pace, too. We're doing 4.45 most of the way. I nod. It was a solid run. We sit down on the steps. I loosen my laces, pulling one shoe off with two hands, inspecting the tread for a hint of glass. Want a beer? Paul stands. I screw up my face, looking into the sun as he stands before me. It's morning, and it's bloody hot. We've earned it. He wanders off inside, and I hear the fridge door open. Yeah, I guess we have. That was Trina Denner's short story, Playing Outside, read by myself. Next, we have a microfiction from the Spineless Wonders anthology, Time. Written by Kim Waters, over time paints a poignant picture of a retired cyclist. It is read by Little Fiction's regular, Eleni Schumacher. Over Time by Kim Waters Every weekend he rode miles up and down the Great Ocean Road, a flask of water clipped to the bike frame, his helmet bobbing in regular breaths. Now he sits in a brown leather chair, working the lever at his side, searching for the right elevation, the perfect tipping point for a glass of beer on the TV's horizon. Sometimes it's hard to join the dots between the years. The points seem out of alignment, and although you look for logic in the harlequin patterns, there's nothing there but a dark tunnel with only the palest stream of light hissing in the distance. Our final short story today is by the legendary Australian crime writer Peter Corris, who sadly passed away in late 2018. Peter's story, Three Pan Creek Gift, is published in the Spineless Wonders crime fiction anthology, Crime Scenes. In this story, Peter Corriss's iconic Sydney private detective, Cliff Hardy, takes on a client in a country town foot race. It is performed by Little Fiction's regular, Felix Johnson.
2: I was surprised when I got a phone call from professional sprinter, Travis Cook, in September of 1988. I'd heard of him because he'd finished second twice in the stall gift, and had won some other big races. I had more than a passing interest in professional running. An uncle had won the stall gift in the 1940s and was a family hero. I hadn't quite inherited my uncle's speed out of the blocks, or over the distance, and regretted it. I agreed to meet Travis Cook. Where he was training on a grass track in the grounds of Sydney University, where he worked as a fitness coach and gym instructor for several of the university's sports teams. Late on a cold afternoon, I stood near the cricket nets while Cook did twenty meter spurts, running forwards, then backwards, then skipping sideways. Travis was six foot four in the old money, and probably weighed twelve stone plus. Despite that, in motion, he appeared to be as airborne and graceful as a ballet dancer. I watched him go through these demanding exercises for twenty minutes. When he stopped and came over to me he was sweating freely. Cliff Hardy, I said. Travis. We shook hands. I'd put money on you in anything involving running backwards or sideways. You taking the piss? I wasn't that keen on meeting here. It's cold and I already knew you could run. Yeah, well, I just wanted to show you I was in serious training. I'm convinced. For what? He toweled off. The three-pan creek gift. You've heard of it? I have. My uncle Clem ran it as a backmarker. Didn't win. Well, then you'll know that it's on again for one last time. Decent money. I can win it. I bloody will. Unless some bastards manage to stop me. We walked to where our cars were parked. Travis had a VW 1500 station sedan. Not new, not old, but a good car. Travis told me he heard about me in Brewer's Gym, where he worked out with some boxers I knew. They say you're fair dinkum. What would it cost you to hire as a bodyguard for a week? I told him. That's steep, but I can manage it. Whoa, I said. Bodyguarding you against what, exactly? Who knows? Spike drinks, assaults, accidents. I'll be the favourite, or well, near enough. The betting's going to be huge. I've heard some whispers. Nothing specific, but shit happens. You're talking about a week at Willow Bend. Right. I've hired a caravan. We'll go down there and train for a week. You could appear to be my trainer. Do you good? Get a bit of the flab off. The idea appealed to me. A holiday in the country, how hard could it be? I told him that I charged a substantial retainer, but I'd waive that in return for him paying the expenses. I said I'd judge my total account according to whether he won or lost. He laughed. (laughs) Well, that means I'll be paying full whack, because I'm a sure thing. We shook hands on the arrangement. I didn't tell him what life had taught me early on, that there's no such animal as a sure thing. Travis towed the Nova caravan and I drove my own car. I had friends in Braidwood I planned to visit after the gift had been run. The drive to Willow Creek went smoothly, although traffic thickened up as we got close to the town. As an entrant in the race, Travis got a prime spot in the caravan park. I left the Falcon close by and carried my overnight bag to the Nova. I was surprised to see that Travis had laid on a couple of beers to welcome me to our temporary home. Last one before the race? he said. Dry as a bone from now on. Not for you, of course. I'll make it easy for you, I said. I won't drink in here. Thanks, Cliff. He was an easy man to like. He had a good sense of humour and one of the crucial attributes of likability. He knew when to talk and when to keep quiet. The weather was kind. We hit a mild spell that looked like lasting until the big day. The town was in a festive mood and the show got underway with the usual attractions. No boxing tents, though, which was something I always missed at city and country shows. I mentioned this to Travis on our second night as we were having dinner at a cafe. Did you ever take a glove? he asked. Well, I did once at the Sydney show, just before I went into the army. Jimmy Sharman Jr.'s tent. This big black fella knocked me on my arse. Didn't last a round, didn't get the money. He'd been getting tense and I thought the story would amuse him, but it didn't. I decided that was a good thing. He didn't like to hear about losing. Travis handled all the administrative arrangements himself. We train on the big Willow Creek cricket ground, where the story was that Don Bradman was the only man to have ever hit a six. That was as a teenager back in his brief country cricket days. There were several closely mown strips on the oval that resembled the actual racetrack. Third time out early in the morning, I took my place with the stopwatch while Travis set himself. Something caught my eye, and I held up my hand. Hold it! What? I noticed a different color in the grass as the light caught it. We inspected the spot and saw that the turf had been disturbed, and there was a soft patch that would subside when a speedy foot hit it. I told you, Travis said, you've got good eyes. We relocated. There was plenty of room on the oval, and I inspected the ground carefully from then on. That Bradman story's bullshit, Travis said the night before the first heat. I could hit a fucking six there, off the right ball. Easy, mate, I said. Don't go sour on me. He grinned. Fuck you. How'd you go after five days without a drink? Not too good. We were sitting under the caravan canopy, drinking coffee. Travis was towy but yawning. I was fresh after a swim in the river. Suddenly there was an odd noise, a grinding sound. I jumped up in time to catch one of the aluminium rods that supported the heavy canopy as it collapsed towards where Travis was sitting. Together we inspected the damage. Two of the rods had been partly sawn through, leaving sharp edges. If the canopy had caught Travis on the way down... You see what I mean, he said. The bookies were there in strength. I put ten bucks on Travis to win the gift, but as he'd won his first heat and come a close second in the next, he was sure to start at a short price, if not as favourite. I wondered about that second placing. I was pretty sure he'd eased up in the heat, and I asked him about it. I fucked up, he said. I meant to come in third, but that bugger Jacko Phillips must have had the same idea, edged me out. It's just to get better odds, is it? You betting? Me? Nah, can't afford it. I was angling for a lighter penalty, but didn't work. I'm off for five yards. Can you make that up? Bloody earth, I can. Put a few bucks on me, mate. Yeah, I have already, but I thought you weren't quite as sharp in our last session as you had been. He tapped the side of his nose. Yeah, I told that journal who interviewed me, I was tapering, and he bought it. I've heard of swimmer's tapering, but I didn't think it applied to sprinters. It doesn't. Did you tell the journo about me? He grinned. Just a bit. For colour. And I thought boxing was dodgy. This is the dodgiest, maybe along with the dogs. That's one of the reasons this could be its last gasp. The day of the race, the local paper carried a story about Travis and how his bodyguard had averted several suspicious incidents. His odds shortened so that he became virtually unbackable and the odds on the other runners became correspondingly generous. I wasn't particularly happy about the publicity either. The day was perfect and the crowd was large and noisy. The white painted track lines stood out against the shaved down green grass. A hundred-yard sprint by top athletes, even on a grass surface, is over in under 10 seconds. Travis was on his back mark in the middle lane. He was quick out of the blocks and shot away. He was in the lead at the halfway point, but Phillips, the man who'd outfoxed him to take third place in the heat, hauled him in and beat him by a matter of inches. What happened? I said. A fucking cramp at the 80-yard mark shit happens Travis appeared crestfallen I gave him a substantial discount on my fee he wrote me a check and we shook hands I packed up my stuff and headed off to my car for the drive to Braidwood when I got there I found the battery had flattened and it took me a while to find someone with jumper leads to get it started and then I realised I'd forgotten to pack my book I left the falcon ticking over and headed back to the caravan in the gathering gloom I approached from the rear and heard voices as I got close. Travis and another man were sitting under the repaired canopy and I heard the pop of beer cans. I was about to step up when I heard Travis give a self-satisfied laugh. (laughs) Would you believe, Jacko? I got 10 to 1 on you and I had 1,500 down. Shit. Well, that means with half of the purses agreed, you finished up ahead of what you would have got if you'd won. Travis laughed again. <laughs> right, but you can never tell. It was going to be one of us, and this may sure we both won. And you've got the glory, mate. I've pulled this stunt before, but I reckon this was my last chance. What about that minder? Good touch, the effect on the odds and that. But he didn't suss ya. I, th- I thought he might be onto me at one point after the heat, but let it slide. He loved being part of the big sports scene. Athletics tragic is what he is. I stood there seething in the gathering darkness. I wanted to go in and flatten the pair of them, but Travis was right. I'd let myself be seduced by the ambience, the atmospherics. Fuck them both, I thought. Went back to my car. The check bounced, of course, but I had a good time with my people on their braidwood farm. And his scheme didn't benefit, Travis. The caravan jackknifed on him at a bend on the way back, and it and the VW went over a very long drop. It took two days to find the site and winch Travis up. From the state of the body, they said, he must have died instantly. That was lucky.
0: That was Felix Johnson performing the late Peter Corris' story, Three Pan Creek Gift. That's all we have time for this week, We hope you've enjoyed our sport-related stories. Tell us what you think. Please drop us a line using the feedback form on the 2RPH website or leave a comment on the Little Fictions Facebook page. We'd love your feedback on the show. And if you have missed any of our shows, or if you'd like to re-listen or catch up on some of our extended interviews, you can find all of our past episodes on the 2RPH website. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your Little Fictions on Air host. This episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher Bronwyn Meehan. And our sound engineer was Lachlan Perry. Bye for now.